Hello and welcome to Talking TV. This isn't Peter White this week, I'm Robin Parker, sitting in while Peter selfishly enjoys a bit of sun. This week it's all about the election fever that's sweeping the nation. We've had election debates and comedy specials, and it's almost time for broadcasters to dust off the screens, the swingometers and the fancy CGI graphics for the big night itself. In this edition we'll be speaking to Matt Ford, presenter of Dave's satirical chat show Unspun, about finding the funny in the party campaigns. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Joining me at Maple Street Studios is broadcast reporter Miranda Blaisby, who's been digging into what broadcasters have planned for June the 8th. Miranda, it's only two years since the last election and almost one year since Brexit. What do you think broadcasters have learned from the past couple of years and what have they got their sleeves this time? The main thing that everyone seems to have learned after the surprise Brexit result and uh, the 2015 result as well is that polls aren't necessarily as trustworthy as everyone thought they might be. So this week I spoke to Sky, Channel 5, Channel 4, ITV and BBC and they are all unimpressed with the last set of polling results in the last few elections and referendums so they're dialing down their reliance on those which maybe isn't surprising and during the last week the polls have been quite tumultuous so you can understand why that would be elsewhere i think people are using a lot more platforms and uh, live streams so itv did a facebook live q a with robert peston and Theresa may and then Channel 5 and Channel 4 are doing a lot on Facebook. Sky News is concentrating on its mobile app for its results on the general election night. That seems to be one of its main focuses. And I think that, especially with ITV and the BBC, they've been working around Theresa May saying quite early on that she wasn't going to do any debates. So they've been doing that with things like The One Show which the BBC did, Question Time and Sky and Channel 4's Battle for Number 10 Q&A as well. Do you think... The election debates, which I assume you've been watching some of, have been working. They've been introduced to the last three elections now. It's the kind of thing that perhaps some some viewers may feel it's very stage managed. They they go in with their preconceptions. They're, they're not really changed. Sometimes the leaders turn up. Sometimes they don't, as we've seen. What do you think they bring to the debate, or the, the way that the broadcasters cover the election? Do you think they're a useful service? Personally, I don't I don't really like debates. I think it gives everyone a, a good opportunity to speak over each other and argue and I don't think that you necessarily get a good sense of where everyone is at the end of it. The Q&A formats that uh, are especially prevalent this time around because of the lack of debates, so Question Time and Andrew, Andrew Marr doing his interviews and uh, also the Battle for, for Number 10, I think those are a lot more effective in really dialling down into the way that one leader thinks. But that, of course, ends up with just the two major party leaders getting a say rather than the Lib Dems and uh, the Green Party and UKIP and everyone else. And of course, they have their debates. Hardly anyone watches it because it hasn't got, you know, the, the, the star power of some of the others. What did you make of Corbyn's last minute change of heart this week? I don't really think it was last minute. <laughs> <laughs> I got an email. I think we all got an email from the BBC a few days ago detailing who was going to be who for representing each party and Labour was the only one without anyone on that sheet which I thought was a little bit suspicious and then obviously yesterday he suddenly decided that he was going to attend I think it was a little bit planned quite a clever move probably just wanting to issue a direct challenge to Theresa May which she obviously didn't answer so probably puts him in a little bit more of a powerful situation than beforehand. And all broadcasters talk of wanting to engage young viewers you mentioned before some of their social media stuff do you think that's reaching that audience and what do you make of their efforts so far? I think what the BBC is doing is quite interesting. Jonathan Monroe said that he is 
organising lots of their coverage geared towards the 18 to 24 audience a lot later in the campaign because they don't really like to consume election coverage early on. So they've got their Newsbeat debate coming up on the Tuesday before polling day, which is quite interesting. The Facebook stuff, I think, does resonate, but it's quite difficult to measure how many people that's really reaching and how many people is changing their minds. The Facebook Live Q&A that ITV's done, I think, is quite interesting again. But it's again, it's it's all quite difficult to see the results of that until polling day has come and gone. The nature of political interviewing and commentating, you know, it's often seen to be sort of quite male, quite combative, picking people up on their mistakes, pressing them on points. What do you think of that kind of era of Paxman, John Humphreys and so on? Do you think we are starting to see some different approaches that are working there? Do you think politicians are ready for a different sort of broadcasting challenge? I don't know about politicians, but I think the audiences are a little bit tired of the sort of bulldog approach of of Paxman and and Humphreys. I think they can be quite tiresome to watch, speaking over people and not letting people finish their sentences. And I think in this election, we've had a few more, as I said, one-to-one question and answers. I think the one show was especially a lot more relaxed. I think that played much more into Corbyn's favour than it did into Theresa May's. So it's nice to have that variety. Then, of course, you've got Channel 4 doing a lot of satire and the last leg has got an election night special and there's the alternative election night as well. So I think there are other options other than just the, the Jeremy Paxman going for everyone approach. So on the night itself, what are, what are broadcasters <coughs> promising? So it seems that um, the majority of the broadcasters, while shrugging off polls, are getting much more interested in the regional conversation and the national conversation around the country. So on the election night, I think especially ITV and Sky News are operating the logistical challenge of getting a lot of reporters out at all the individual counts. And ITV especially has got a live video feed of each day's campaign events and the election count as well going online. So I think there's a there's a renewed interest in that regional conversation, especially since the Brexit vote perhaps was reported from a media bubble and didn't really get everyone's opinions from around the country. And perhaps if there'd been a renewed focus on that, the result wouldn't have been such a shock. Moving away just slightly from Westminster, but not too far, we can't really get away without mentioning once again the latest updates or lack of them from Channel 4. The chief executive role has, we've been told, it's lost its lustre with board members and candidates alike fixated on the uncertainty regarding the broadcaster's future, particularly its location. Miranda, what can you tell us about the latest developments? So I think that it turns out that the Tory manifesto, which pledges to move Channel 4 from London in some way, either in full or or a part relocation, was published on uh, exactly the same day that Channel 4 held interviews for its new chief executive which wasn't very good timing so I think that the idea of committing to a job without knowing where that job's going to be based or where the channel's going to be based or the the channel facing programming cuts and all the rest in coming in the future is uh, a bit of a concern for those candidates I think the board is meeting later next week which will be the first time since the manifesto was published. So uh, perhaps we'll have some more answers after that. So post-election updates on Channel 4. And so, Miranda, what will you be doing on election night? Are you, are you a political junkie? Do you stay up all night? I mean, obviously you have to be sharp for broadcast the next day, but... Uh... <laughs> it's Friday, isn't it? So we don't have to be too sharp. <laughs> well, news never sleeps. 
But I think that I will probably be in bed looking at the BBC News app every half an hour until 6am and then I'll probably wake up and cry a bit. (laughs) Well, let's hope not. (laughs) Well, that's our news for this week. You can read more on all these stories in this week's magazine or online at broadcastnow.co.uk. Time now for our interview, which this week is with Matt Ford, the former Labour Party advisor who swapped full-time politics for comedy. On air right now is the third series of Unspun, the Avalon TV show for Dave, a topical show that mixes Ford's satirical observations and sketches with interviews with politicians and commentators. And this time around, Dave is offering up a double helping to wring the maximum comedy out of the election. Ford is presenting two editions a week on Wednesdays and Sundays, wrapping up just before the big day itself. Jeremy Corbyn has had an amazing week. According to a YouGov poll out this morning, the Theresa May party may lose seats and end up in a hung parliament. On top of that, just hours ago, he sensationally decided to take part in tonight's BBC debate. On Monday, he outperformed expectations at the TV debate that wasn't a debate. He was so confident that body language experts believe he may have been sneaking in subtle, physical messages for Theresa May. To me, leadership is as much about using this as using this. Matt, welcome to the show. Hello, a pleasure to be here. Where is your head at right now? Election fatigue or are you getting psyched up for the big night? I'm psyched up. I always enjoy elections anyway, so I, I enjoy them in a sort of similar fashion to how I enjoy World Cups and European Championships. That I enjoy the whole month. I want to watch as much of it as possible. I want to wake up to news about it. I want to consume it all day. It's the last thing I think about at night. And I love the twists and turns that you get. And I think this election has gone from being a foregone conclusion to being something perhaps slightly more chaotic at the time in which we speak. Maybe it will settle again. But I can't get enough of it. I love it all. Even though it's only two years since the last one. Two years and, of course, a referendum last year and an independence referendum before that. So it's been an incredible five years, really. And so the election itself has prompted this current series, the third series. You've said before that you start from the principle politicians are a good thing. Yes. Do you still feel that way at this point in the election? And are there times in this campaign when your faith has been tested? Absolutely. I should probably qualify it, really. Most politicians are, are good. We obviously live in an era now of Trump and various other individuals that are... And whatever else you think about them, perhaps not with the best of intentions. So it was never about not holding people to account or not taking the threat seriously from certain individuals. Just a a realisation that most politicians do try and change the world for the better. That doesn't mean that you go easy on them or that you don't hold them to account or that you don't take the mick and, and, and tear them to shreds, which you should as a satirist. But just that I think it's important for people to know that there's at least a background level of respect there for it. And you're making two shows a week. Can you talk us through about how that pans out? You know, does this take over your entire week? What's the planning process on any one show when you're, you know you've got another one on the Sunday night? We're on Wednesdays and Sundays. So the Wednesday show we start writing on the Monday. So Monday, Tuesday we write, and then on Wednesday we kind of change and hone and, and try and take things from that day so that it's ultra-topical. And then we film it at 6 o'clock on a Wednesday night and it's broadcast at 10 Thursday we have off, although really that's working from home. Friday we start writing for Sunday, so Friday and Saturday we write for for Sunday show and and the same again. So really it's six full days a week with a day at home still consuming all the rest of it. It's quite hard, especially in an election campaign where news moves fast, to pick the story you want to pick. And the temptation is always to be blown off course by the contemporary. But if in a three-day period you've had a major party launch a manifesto 
a small row about something else, then you have to really decide what is the most important story you want to tell. And I would always choose a policy detail or an announcement of some weight over the latest route. You want to really show the entertaining side of the election, whether it's Boris's meltdown on Monday night prior to the leaders' debate or Jeremy Corbyn's interview on Woman's Hour, but you also also want to be able to tell the story of the SNP manifesto and give a flavour of that. And it's getting that balance right, as you say, between the entertainment and the politics, and also an awareness that there are other shows that would cover these in an entertaining way. Everyone has to have their own take on it. So what do you think marks out what you do compared to perhaps some of the other shows out there? I think the fact that I did it means that I've got a slightly different eye, that I spot things in manifestos and announcements that are more political and aren't just things that other people might spot, for instance. I think I've got quite a cynical political eye, so I, I always read a manifesto still as a political advisor and see where the caveats and where the loopholes and where the repetition and where the, the subterfuge is. I don't worry too much about what other people do because I just think, especially with the internet, these things go viral immediately anyway. So a, a lot of people will have already seen it. You just have to trust your own judgment that you're saying something that other people wouldn't. You can't get into the game of second-guessing what other people are doing. If there's repetition, it's entirely coincidental. If not, then great. And there, there are stories you, you just don't want to ignore, even if they everyone's already commenting them on Twitter or whatever, because they are the fabric of the of course, election yeah, campaign. You, you've got to tackle the major stuff. You can't hide away from the major stories. Just as everyone in a workplace will have a different opinion on them, different TV shows will have a different take on them. If you take the Boris clip that we showed last night, there's a bit where he's sort of remonstrating with poor Andrew Gwynn, the Labour MP. Boris just totally loses it. You can either show that clip in full. One thing I like to do is is cut in and out of clips, is to show a bit, tantalise the audience with the start of the story, and then lead an audience through it a bit, and either give it a narrative. And I think that that's a really good device for getting more comedy out of what is already quite funny. That's something you can't do on social media, really. What do you think has changed and what has stayed the same since your time? I think mostly very little has changed. Manifestos are still quite bland documents that most people don't read and shouldn't be taken too seriously. So in that regard, manifestos are still irrelevant. What I think has changed slightly is... This idea of fully costing them, it seems to specifically affect the Labour Party. And in that way, the Labour Party is unfairly treated. There's a greater threshold that Labour has to pass on economic credibility than the Tories. Now, you could actually say that that's quite fair. I think it's a little unfair. So that that emphasis this time round, I think, has been quite interesting. I think that has changed. And Labour, I think, did the right thing in publishing an extra document that says, here's how we costed it. Now... We took apart those figures. They're not hard to take apart. But the fact that they realised they had to do it will have reassured some people. A lot of manifestos are purely about window dressing. It's just about communication. It's about saying to people, we fully costed it. Most people aren't going to read it. But if you convince people and say, we fully costed it, that message on some level gets through. You satirise American politics on the show as well mm. with your, your Trump impression. Yeah. Is he the gift that keeps giving or is it just too easy to be flippant about him? Both are true. <laughs> he is. He communicates in a way that no other president has. My theory on Trump is that actually a lot of people wasted a lot of their commentary on Bush. That I always thought they were reading Bush wrong. And actually, he was a man who had politics in his DNA. He was a highly skilled communicator. George W. Bush absolutely knew what he was doing and understood politics. Really got it. Donald Trump is a totally different person. 
Bush was as much about the political establishment as you could get. Now, Trump's a different sort of establishment, but politically, actually, he's not part of the political establishment. He's not part of the establishment of the Republican Party. So in that regard, he's very different. And that makes him a far more chaotic individual. Now, to some extent, he knows what he's doing. He's deliberately entertaining. He's deliberately outrageous because it distracts from all sorts of manner of other things. And it keeps him in the news. It keeps his brand, it keeps his name out there. Now, he made billions in keeping his name out there in the business world. He obviously had a head start thanks to his father. And he's doing the same in politics. He ensures that we keep talking about him. Now, the challenge is to say, do you then not succumb to that and almost take a stand and say, we're not covering him? That's not going to stop people talking about him. And, and you're cutting off a vital sort of artery. Yeah, He's the leader of the free, of the free <laughs> he's the world. the leader of the free world, yeah. He is, he is simultaneously a disaster and something that we should be deeply concerned about. He is a volatile individual in a world that feels more fractious than it perhaps has done in recent years. It's not reassuring that he's got his finger on the nuclear button. The people he surrounded himself with don't reassure me. But at the same time, it's highly entertaining. And I think you can do both. I think you can say that this guy's turbulent and troublesome. But equally, <laughs> I have to admit, I find him so watchable. I can't stop. If he's on telly, I definitely watch him. I can't stop watching him. I find him very funny. I despise him. He scares the wits out of me. But equally, I find him very entertaining. And I think that's not an easy truth for a lot of us to come to terms with. That actually, Trump is box office. You know, as a writer, it's not a character you could make up. His personality and his mannerisms and his way of being a president are unlike anything anyone could imagine. That's right. And if you'd have made it up, people would have said it's so ridiculous. Now, we've said this before with Yes Minister and with the thick of it, and we're living in a sort of post-satire world in a way where truth is stranger than fiction. Now, people have said that before, but in Trump, it is definitely true. It is demonstrably true that he's so different to other politicians in the way that he behaves. I can't get enough of him. I, I hate myself for it. I hate myself for being sucked in. I don't agree with him, but I hate myself for being sucked into the entertainment of it. And his obsession with fake news and yeah. his sort of battle with the media, that's all grist to the mill for a satirist as well because it opens up a whole other channel for you. It does. And what you, what's always fascinating is, is the sort of the phrases that dominate a particular era. I think actually a lot of this was post-Trump. I think a lot of this had its roots in the Scottish independence referendum of 2014. That was when, in a developed country and in a functioning democracy, you had a breakdown between the media and the populace in a way that we haven't had before. There's always been cynicism about the media. There's always been a recognition that tabloids don't print the unvarnished truth. But what you saw in Scotland in 2014 was people creating their own media and using the ferocious nature of social media to shut down debate and to behave in a way that was totally unacceptable, as well as actually a lot of positive stuff on both sides. That predated Trump, and Trump actually has tapped into something that is global, that is this, this platform that social media has given the voiceless and the angry. If you can coordinate that and build effectively online political parties or online movements and use those not only to get your message out, but to, to shut down other people, to invent words and phrases that spread virally, catchphrases that catch on like that, like fake news and alternative facts, then actually you're effectively in control of the means of production. You're in charge of the news because you've got millions of people online that are your news network that you can bypass the networks and the, and the broadcasters and the print media with. So in a way, Trump wasn't the first, but he's certainly the best example of how politicians 
who for a long time have wanted to circumnavigate the media to go direct to into people's households and into people's minds has done it in a way that is deeply perverse and is deeply troubling. And what do you think that means for broadcasters here? I mean, does it make an increasingly tough job to engage the audience and involve the politicians? I and mean, we've seen debates this time round where you know, Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn aren't doing a debate. Then Jeremy Corbyn says, actually, I'll do the debate and Theresa May still doesn't. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the, the model for political coverage, particularly at an election time? I worry about it. I worry about the pressure on broadcasters now. You know, before you might get a few letters into points of view and that'd be it. These days, the pressure on broadcasters to not be seen as biased, and again, you saw it in Scotland with the treatment Nick Robinson got, and I I didn't think that got covered enough. This was a BBC journalist going about his work, holding the powerful to account, and you had rallies on the streets with his face on banners. Now, in a developed country, that should worry people. And I think that's that's an early warning sign, as is Trump, as to the sort of country we're going to be living in soon. This isn't about one particular side. UKIP do it, Tory supporters do it, Jeremy Corbyn supporters certainly do it. Everyone's party has elements within it that are prepared to do it, which is try and cow broadcasters, try and bully them into not asking difficult questions. So there's the one challenge on on that side, which is an attempt by all sides to, to shut down critical journalism and open journalism. And on the other side, genuinely creating rivals to it, whether it is the canary, which probably isn't the best example, but but nevertheless a living, breathing thing that people trust more than they trust the BBC. Now, these are still in their infant stages, but if broadcasters and and traditional media can't see these off without sort of lowering themselves to their level, then I fear for journalism in Britain, really, and and in the world, because why on earth would you want to be a journalist if you're going to get the sort of abuse that people are getting these days? It will put people off going into journalism in the same way that it's put people off going into politics. And the... The nature of politicians and their use of media often means that the characters, like your Trumps, rise to the surface. And you have this sort of strange dual thinking where Nigel Farage will go on a public platform and say, and say the BBC is biased, they don't, they don't cover UKIP's views. Yeah. By, the same, by the same token, UKIP always seems to have someone on question time. <laughs> are these yeah. sort of things a bit out of balance with each other, do you think? They are a bit. I mean, I, I feel, obviously, th- these things always come down to the BBC, really. They they get more scrutiny about these things, for obvious reasons. Actually, I have a lot of sympathy with the fact that UKIP have been given airtime because they got four million votes at the last election. Now, on vote share alike, they finished third, ahead of the Liberal Democrats. Now, a lot of people crowed that they only got, you know, one seat or no seats or whatever. It was still, in terms of vote share, incredible. Now, just because our system doesn't adequately reflect the will of the people... That doesn't mean that broadcasters should not allow UKIP a platform. And I actually think UKIP get a fair amount of coverage. I think after this election, when it looks like the tide will go out, then you'll see that reflected, hopefully by broadcasters, that they get a lot less. But I totally understand the argument as to why they've been given a platform. And actually, in a country that voted to leave, justifiable, I think. But Farage... I struggle with Farage because, in many ways, he's very honest. Not about the challenges facing Britain or anything like that, or about the the cost of immigration or the the effect of it. But as a commentator on the media, actually, a lot of the time he's quite straight, in an odd way. I remember seeing him during the referendum campaign, and it was, vote leave had had an awful week, and he was on News 24, they said, it's been an awful week, hasn't it, Nigel? He said, yeah, been the worst week where you've had, the whole campaign. And was you never see politicians doing that. And in an odd way, there's there's a sort of bizarre honesty about Farage. So sometimes... When he's commenting on media issues, I have a certain amount of sympathy with him. 
when he's talking about balance in the BBC, obviously, I mean, it's demonstrably untrue that UKIP don't get a fair hearing from the BBC or from other broadcasters. What he understood as well was be interesting. You know, UKIP did well, I think, partly because of the, the mood that was carrying us towards that referendum and that referendum result. But also a lot of it was down to him. He understands and he has understood pre-Trump as a politician the need to be entertaining, the need to just keep focus on you. And sometimes he does that, sadly, in quite despicable ways. So how do you go about choosing the guests for your show? Do you have a conscious desire to feature people who perhaps aren't as exposed on, aren't on all chat shows and, and political shows? Absolutely. The first concern over a series is, is balance. You don't want to have more Labour or more Tory or more Lib Dem or more UKIP guests than you've had other parties. Inevitably, you're gonna, you might have one or two more from one party than the other. So you always, I always try and get a, a fairly even balance across the parties. Then it's about who's going to give a good interview, but not necessarily, and you're absolutely right, not necessarily somebody the public will immediately know. So it is about bringing people on that I've always wanted to interview, that I find fascinating, and effectively saying to an audience, you're going to have to trust me that this person is not necessarily, entertaining is the wrong word, interesting or insightful. And if you interview them in a way that is positive and you're polite to them, you'll get more out of them. So it's always exciting to have a big name on. Yeah, you're not going to turn someone down. No. Are there people you've tried to get that you really want and for any reason, diary, diary clash or whatever, it just hasn't worked out yet? You'd be on your dream list. Trump would be my dream guest. He would be my number one dream guest. I mean, any American president would be great. I'd love to have Gordon Brown on because I think he's one of the most fascinating individuals to ever be prime minister. William Hague would be brilliant. I'm interviewing William Hague next month for a live show that I do, but I would love to have him on the on the telly show because he is someone who is exceptionally bright, has been at the heart of government, has led a political party, and is very, very funny. I think William Hague is your sweet spot, really, of a politician for a television interview. And then there are other people like Douglas Carswell. You know, there are always the broad brush stories of the political times we're living in, whether it's Brexit or Trump or Corbyn and May. But there are always these other interesting stories. George Galloway is a fascinating individual who's led a remarkable life. Simon Danchuk is, you know, for, for a variety of different reasons. And Douglas Carswell's move from Conservative to UKIP to Independent and this sort of cerebral libertarianism that, that he represents, which is a, a wing really not represented in, in British politics, is interesting. Charles Kennedy would have it was someone I always wanted to interview and sadly never got the opportunity to. I was lucky enough to meet him, but he, for me, was an icon of a politician, someone who was a principled man and stood against the war in Iraq in a way that was so articulate and very meaningful, but never, never questioned, I didn't think, the moral integrity of people who disagreed with him. And I think that's really important. And I think that would be, if I could wish for anything to come out of these, I think, quite morbid times in which we're living, is I think people have lost... The joy of disagreement twinned with respect. Because they're choosing who they, who's in their echo chamber. Well, yeah, and they just, the, the presumption that if you disagree with someone, that person's not just wrong, but like morally repugnant, is something that I don't recognise. I think it's a great thrill to sit opposite someone you totally disagree with and like them as an individual and enjoy the thrill of questioning your own opinion and finding out where they're coming from and whether it's their experience that's led them there or whether it's their education that's led them there, whatever it is, whatever their perspective on the world is, without presuming that all Tories are bad, all Corbynistas are mad, all Trump people are racist, or all UKIP people are racist. Charles Kennedy, for me, was, was the sort of politician we need more of. And do you enjoy those sort of interviews more? I mean, Oh, absolutely. It's a thrill to sit down with a proper blue-blood Tory. Jacob Rees-Mogg 
is one of the most delightful people I've ever met. Clever, the most well-mannered person, I think, probably on the planet. I completely disagree with the vast majority of what he says, but he's a wonderful person to spend time with. As is, by the way, Nigel Farage is a great person to talk to. He's fascinating. I completely disagree with nearly everything that comes out of his mouth. But he's a great person to sit down over you know, a glass of water or with him a, a bottle of red and talk about politics with. And you should be able to sit down with people you disagree with and enjoy them. And do you think this keeps the audience on their toes? You know, the, the danger that satire can just sort of preach to, to the converted. That's and a major n- danger. nod along in agreement. I mean, with any telly show, with any piece of entertainment, you'd want as many people as possible to want to watch it. And even without that, even if it wasn't about that, the, the sort of political comedy I've always tried and done was, was to take the mick out of everyone. That, for me, was what equality was about, was giving everyone giving everyone a hard time. And then it's fair. You wouldn't want people to sit in an audience and think, well, all he's done is bash the Tories. Or equally, all he's gone on about is Corbyn. So you need to spread it around, because even the side that you agree with will be incompetent, will make mistakes, will say things that you disagree with, and you have to own that. I think sometimes people are a little too precious about their own point of view, and you have to accept that we're all wrong, we all make mistakes, and that applies to politics as well. And there's more fun to be had then, because it gives you more targets. And then an audience can think, well, fair enough, he's having a go at UKIP now, but he had a go at the Greens last week, or he had a go at the Lib Dems. And then it's all... I enjoyed politics in the round. It was never just about my point of view. I always enjoyed listening to Conservatives, even if I disagreed with them from a young age. And I've tried to bring that spirit into the into the telly show. One question that always comes up when we talk about satire on TV is... Let's look to America. Let's look to the Daily Show, your John Oliver's, and so on. Mm. Why can't we do this nightly over here? You're doing a show that seems to be working for you. I'm sure it's working for Dave. At the moment, it's twice a week. Prior to that, it's once a week, and it's only on a couple of series a year. Do you think a UK broadcaster or a UK talent team could sustain things that run for a bit longer? Do you think we are lacking something in that that sense? Totally. Uh, And I think you could do it daily. You would need the resources to do it. Because to turn around a topical TV show that is glossy and that is high quality, you would need a bigger writing team because you'd have to turn things around quicker and you'd need the resource to... Getting things like clips that you use takes time. You know, you you watch it when it goes out or you don't. You know, you've got people watching Sky News and News 24 and other things. It's then about spotting the subtleties in that one bit of VT that you want to use. It's then all sitting around and watching it deciding what's funny about it, deciding whether you want to play it long or clip it or white flash it and all these things where you go in and out or whatever, that takes time. So if you're doing it daily, you'd need you'd need more of that because you'd have, you'd have to be garnering even more. You wouldn't have the, the two days to sort of go through everything. You could absolutely do it. I think the biggest barrier to it is convincing broadcasters that the audience wants it, is that fear. Would people actually watch a daily satirical show in Britain? I think they absolutely would. I think actually... Particularly now. I think now is the time. I think now, when there is a sort of mistrust of the media, when there is a desire for... Part of what these shows do, and partly what I try and do, is not just entertain, but inform as well. That actually, if you're watching Unspun on a Wednesday and Sunday night, you will see things that you haven't seen on the news... Or you're getting people that wouldn't normally watch the news but say, you know what, actually, I can watch that and I know it'll be entertaining and I will learn a bit. I'll get some stuff about the election in. So then if people are coming to you for both, that's the sweet spot because you're entertaining them and they're coming to you for news. News never sleeps, and that's, to and invert that's, a phrase from Wall Street. And that's the sweet spot that John Stewart 
hit in America. I mean, it's often reported that people turn to him for a certain type of viewer turn to him for their their news coverage. Absolutely. I mean, if I was living in America, I would. Because actually he was, he was a highly reputable individual. You knew that he was a serious man. You knew that he understood the world. You knew that he was clever. He obviously had his point of view, but he would take the mick out of everyone, which was also important. But that was done in a way that, you know, that, that really is the... That's the point that everyone's trying to reach, I think. And that doesn't mean that the British versions have to be like that. You should always try and be your own person and, and do the show that you want to do. But the, that is a major influence, I think, on, on a lot of us because it proves that you can do the serious stuff as well. You still have to make it funny, but you, audiences are prepared to watch a show that will give them a bit of detail. That was such a major move forward psychologically for so many of us that are trying to make that sort of thing in our own different way, just to have that reassurance. And they did it in America. You know, if anything, you'd say, well, you know, a British audience might watch it, but, you know, those Americans aren't going to go for it. Doing it in America proved, and as a result, actually, it had a global effect because it was so good and it was it was done there. That it gives, I think, gives us a lot of hope. Doing it twice weekly, you know, it's, it's still a huge step forward, I think, in Britain. To have a topical show that is on twice weekly, that is turning around stuff solely on politics. In our own small way, we're, we're sort of helping create the, the environment for it. Now, finally, the, the series wraps up on Wednesday, the night before the election. So, series over, election night itself. You're there, the adrenaline's pumping. What's your, yeah. what's your plan for the night? I'm hosting an election night party at the Soho Theatre where I'm going to have politicians from all parties there. We'll, we'll do uh, some interviews. We're going to start at half nine, and we're going to show the results on a big screen. So we'll stop at ten for the exit poll, and then we'll have our analysis live on stage with various representatives from the parties. It's something I've always wanted to do. I've always, uh, when I worked for the party, would be at various counts sometimes, and then watching it in the office. I've always wanted to put an event on election night where people, no matter who they support, can come and watch it and drink and be merry or drown their sorrows, depending on what side they're on, but make an event of it. It's a dramatic night of TV. I'm amazed that more pubs don't put it on. I'm amazed that more <laughs> pubs don't say, we've got a late licence for the election. Now, maybe I'd be the only person in there, but I, in, in my own small way, I wanted to put on a sort of election night party, just because these are seismic events. So I'll be there at the Soho Theatre on, on June the 8th, watching it all come in, and I don't want to get sucked into making a prediction. I, you know watching what I think will be the inevitable. Matt, thank you very much. The next edition of Unspun is on Dave on Sunday the 4th of June at 10pm and then the series wraps up on the eve of the election at the same time on Wednesday 7th of June. That's your lot for this week's episode of Talking TV. My thanks to Matt Ford and to Miranda Blaisby. I'm Robin Parker and the producers are Chica Ayres and Matt Hill from Rethink Audio. We'll see you again on the other side of the election.